C.S. Lewis memorably portrayed the growing Christian's experience of an ever enlarging Christ in his Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy, caught up in her spiritual quest, saw the lion Aslan, Christ, shining white and huge in the moonlight. In a burst of emotion, Lucy rushed to him, burying her face in the rich silkiness of his mane. Whereupon the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting, half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath was all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Expanding souls encounter an expanding Christ. And this is why I am particularly enthused by this study of the book of Hebrews. For the epistle has a double dose of growth producing power. First, because it presents the greatness of Christ as no other New Testament writing does. And second, because it repeatedly demands a response from the reader. Hebrews will make us grow and find a bigger Christ. A little more lengthy than I usually like to read to begin, but I really, really like those words from R. Kent Hughes. That's how he began his first chapter in his book, Hebrews, an anchor for the soul. Finding a bigger Christ. Particularly as we start a new year. Because whether we realize it or not, the new year does create excitement. There's excitement, there are new beginnings, and there are new resolutions, and there are bigger and better promises being made by people and companies behind the greatest, uh, the, the latest and greatest plans and products and conferences to help make 2020 better than 2019. But, the under... It may just be me, but the underlying message really seems to be more of, you blew it last year. If you've paid close attention, particularly to the ads and social media, it, it seems like the message is, you weren't disciplined enough. You aren't skinny enough. You didn't exercise enough. You didn't eat enough of the right foods. Um, You didn't read enough. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough of the right things. You don't have the right clothes. And, And also you didn't save enough. You didn't perform well enough. And the evangelical world gets in on it as well. You know, we didn't pray enough. We didn't read our Bible enough. We don't have enough people coming to our church. We didn't do all the things good dads and good moms ought to do. And don't get me wrong, we can all improve. I lead the way. We can all improve. We can all repent more. 
We can all do more of the right things, but there is a difference in needing to improve and that not enough voice that lingers in the backs of our minds. And that voice gets louder and louder and louder as the years go by. And therefore, our our souls need to be expanded. Because as our souls are expanded, we will encounter an expanding Christ who is bigger and better than anyone or anything. It's the Lord Jesus. Well, we need to hear of a bigger and better Christ. We need to hear that he's bigger and he's better than you or I could ever wish or imagine ourselves to be. We need to hear that that he's done more than you or I could ever do. We need to hear in the words of one of the few positive tweets I saw before deleting Twitter at the end of the year. We need to hear that Christ is our enough. He is our enough. And I I believe that that's what our study of Hebrews is going to do. Hebrews is going to do that for us. And from the start, I want to say, and this is kind of an introduction to the introduction, but I want to say from the beginning that I know that seven months seems to be a long time to be in a 13 chapter book, particularly when we were in a 26 chapter book for four months. And and really, when when you consider that, even if we took 10 months or 12 months, we could never mine the gold that's here in Hebrews. I mean, when you consider the fact that in these first three verses that we're going to cover tonight, the doctrines of revelation and um, creation and the Trinity and the continuation or continuity of Scripture and the atonement and Christology are all present and touched upon. And when you break down Christology and realize that Christ is is called the revelation of God, the Son of God, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the heir of all things, the agent of creation, the radiance of his glory, the expression of Of God's nature, the upholder of all creation, the purifier of God's people, and the mediator for God's people. We could take four months just on these three verses. Aaron and I, he came in and I was telling him, I was was lamenting, trying to squeeze three, three verses into one week. But all the more reason to, to be about your own study. Right? So I think seven months and 13 chapters is fair. So with that said, let's stand again. Matt did a great job, but I I want us to read these verses again so that they're fresh in our minds as we begin. Stand as is our custom, and if you are able, and let's read these three verses from Hebrews chapter 1. And then we're going to pray for not only our study tonight, but our study as a whole. Hear now the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you by your spirit allow us um, tonight and in 
the months ahead to see and hear the truth about Christ in such a way that our souls expand. And as our souls expand, may he expand. Open our eyes and ears and enlighten our minds in such a way that we find him bigger each week. May we consider him more fully and completely. And as we do, help us to strive to enter into the rest that you have provided for us in and through him. And it's in the name of our prophet, priest, and king that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so here is introduction part two. If you spend any time in Christian circles on social media or listening to Christian podcasts or meandering through Christian bookstores or eavesdropping even on conversations in restaurants and uh, coffee shops and maybe in school foyers and, and even in barber shops and salons where those kinds of things still go on, you may have noticed a, a few themes that... Um, are prevalent, or at least growing more prevalent. At least, I will say, they, they seem to be, um, for me, they seem to be more common and easier to identify as the days go on. Uh, you may have even noticed them over the holidays as you gathered around the table with some of your Christian family members. Uh, one of them is the theme of spirituality. There seems to be a growing number of Christians who not only have a desire to be spiritual, but consider themselves spiritual, but not Religious. In other words, they have a desire to be and are striving toward and even consider themselves to be in touch with or connected with in some way or in intimate fellowship with and even hearing directly from God. But they describe that spirituality in an individual way or in uh, an internal way and even in an esoteric or secret way. They describe their, their experiences in those ways. And, it's, and those experiences are unique to them. And it isn't dependent upon the gathering of the church. And is often experienced and cultivated apart from God's word. Another theme that I think is growing prevalent is that of sovereignty. There seems to be a growing desire among many to be led by and to follow Someone in authority who can deliver them from their enemies and guarantee their freedom and provide safety and prosperity and guarantee their freedom. And, and they, all of those things that they believe that they're entitled to as citizens and as believers. They're, they're looking for someone who will put an end to the growing animosity that they face from non-Christians as well as the government at large, and I use that term animosity, I'm more comfortable with it because I don't feel comfortable using the word persecution to describe anything that we face here in the United States when others around the world are literally losing life, limb, and liberty for the cause of Christ. So they want someone to deal with that animosity. They, they do want oppression to cease and equality to be experienced and achieved and the poor to be fed and clothed and lives to be valued and protected and religious liberty to be maintained. And all of those things are good, but they seem to believe that that is only going to happen if one particular political party is in control and one particular leader is at the helm. 
They believe that the right party and the right president needs to be in place so that they or he can rule and reign and lead the charge in the midst of political battles and cultural wars that they deem necessary to secure life, liberty, and the pursuit of that. The other theme, or the last theme that I've, I've kind of picked up on is that of justification. A large number of Christians are concerned about and are striving to be seen as right and in right standing with God and, and with their friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and employers. They want to be accepted. They want to be approved of. They want their lifestyles to and, and opinions and uh, to be approved of. They want their intellect and their choices to be validated. And they're, they, they want to be guiltless and they want to be innocent. Not only in their own eyes, but in the eyes of others. But they're expending a great deal of time... And a great deal of physical and emotional effort in their attempts to secure that on their own. Now, those, well, the, the problem that those three themes share, and the reason I take the time to explain those, is that they're all involved with an A concentration on external circumstances and the reliance on man-centered solutions and remedies. But the reality is our problem is internal. And the solution or the remedy and our only hope is a God-centered solution, the the God-centered solution of the gospel. And so if to combat those themes, to to combat those themes as others seem to to move and to begin to embrace those. I think is to deal with the underlying issue. And that underlying issue that must be addressed and must be warned against and must be changed in all three cases is the forsaking of Christ and his gospel. Thus Hebrews. You see because. While I won't say that the. Social and cultural climates. Are exactly the same. There is. A similarity. Between our cultural. And spiritual climate. With the spiritual. Cultural and spiritual climate. Uh, that was taking place or existed around the time of the writing of this letter, which was around 64 AD. And while Origen, in his words, said, God only knows the identity of the author. Um, and, and while that is true, we, we do know that the letter is very pastoral. It's pastoral and was written to Jewish Christians who were in, some say Palestine, uh, most say Rome. And since they had professed faith in Christ, they were doing anything but living their best lives now. I mean, 
Listen to chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. They had endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. They had even had uh, property plundered and taken away from them. And now, at, at the time of the writing, the persecution was beginning to escalate. It was growing stronger and stronger. And in the words of one commentator, their world was falling apart and they were scared stiff. They were avoiding people. They were withdrawing from worship. And they were asking questions like, where is God? Does he know what we're going through? Doesn't he see what's going on? Isn't he going to do something about it? And the pastor, who had apparently been separated, or the one being pastoral, who had been separated from them, is exhorting them in the midst of that suffering to do something specific. He he doesn't want them to forsake Christ. He doesn't want them to renounce their faith. He doesn't want them to fall back into the Judaism that they had left. And he's saying that regardless of what they're encountering at that time, regardless of the circumstances that they find themselves in, nothing could justify the renouncing of their faith and putting themselves back under the law. Because life with, with Jesus was better than anything about their former lives with Judaism under the law. And that was only because Jesus was better than anything about their Judaism. You know, as we learned in Leviticus, it all pointed to him. So he was better. And so he says, as we will go through this letter, Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Aaron. He's the better tabernacle. He's the better sacrifice And he begins tonight just right off the bat in these first three verses by saying he's the better prophet, king, and priest. But not just the better prophet, king, and priest. He is the final prophet and the ultimate king and the perfect priest. And that's our outline. Okay, Three points. The final prophet, the ultimate king, and the perfect priest. Let's go back to verse 1 and look at the final prophet. The writer says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And the, the writer begins with what one commentator called perhaps the single most important statement that could be made in our time. God spoke. God spoke. He who was altogether other, remember? Another phrase from Leviticus, he who is altogether other condescended and revealed himself by speaking to his creation. It was not something he had to do. It wasn't something that he was obligated to do. It was something that he desired to do. And he did so over a long period of time that he began to do a long time ago. So it wasn't something new. It wasn't something that just happened and And as he spoke, he revealed himself over that period of time progressively. 
He revealed himself to Adam and Eve. He revealed himself to Noah. He revealed himself to Abraham. He revealed himself to Moses. He revealed himself to the people of God. And each and every time he revealed himself more and more, he he revealed more of the unchanging truth about his character and his plan. And what at one time had been hidden or veiled had progressively been made known and brought out into the open or unveiled. And he did it in a variety of ways. He did it through a burning bush and a whirlwind and dreams and visions and a still small voice and a normal conversation. And he also did it through a number of people, a variety of people, people or prophets and he would speak to them and, and then he would inspire them to speak and to write to others on his behalf. And, and that's why they would use phrases like, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me saying, or they would wrap up with declares the Lord. And as the people heard them speak, they were actually hearing the Lord speak. And Peter reinforces this idea when he says no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But then the writer says it gets better. He says in these last days. He's spoken to us by his son. And in verse 3, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He who spoke a long time ago and had been silent prior to Christ, had been silent for 400 years, has now spoken in real time. He who once spoke to the fathers has now spoken to us. He who once spoke through the prophets has now spoken through his son, the incarnate son of God, the word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross and became a man and dwelt among us. The son who was and is more than a reflection of God. But who actually is the radiance of his glory. He was distinct, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he was distinct from the father. But he was, in fact, the Shekinah glory of the majestic presence of God, because he was in himself of the same essence as the father. He was and is also the exact imprint of his nature. And so it, it, Jesus said it best. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Again, distinct, yet both God. And as we mentioned again a couple weeks ago in Paul's words, he was the image of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. It was that son who spoke. That son spoke. And there wouldn't be... Because that son spoke, because God himself spoke, there wouldn't be a third phase of his speaking. The full and final prophet, the eternal son, by taking on flesh in the person of Jesus and by speaking, brought God out into the open and made himself known. Revealed himself. 
He is the final prophet to whom all other prophets point. The writer goes on and he says that he is also the ultimate king. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The description is one of power and honor and authority. It reeks of it. He's the all-powerful one through whom all things were created. And not just the earth and the plants and the animals and mankind, but the entirety of the universe. Space, time, energy. John says, as we read, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that had been made. And Paul says, yet for us, there is one Lord Jesus Christ to whom all things who through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so. But not only has he created all things, he sustains and upholds all things as well. He sustains, upholds, preserves. And he does that by speaking. Just as the world was spoken into existence, it is upheld and preserved and sustained by the utterance of Christ. He's active. He is at work. He's sustaining that's what he what he has created. And should he cease to speak, it would all fall apart. One writer put it this way. He preserves what he arranged from running into confusion or reverting back into nothing. And he will not cease upholding because he is at the father's right hand at the father's throne and is ruling and reigning over that which is already his It's already his. He is the ruling heir of the majesty on high. All things were created by him, to him and for him. It's already his just as it will all be his fully and finally at the consummation of redemptive history. He's already in possession of it. So what he made, he sustains, and he rules over as a rightful owner. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he is worthy to be followed because he and he alone is worthy to lead. The last thing that the writer says is he calls him... Or describes him as the perfect priest. The perfect priest. And he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love these words from Richard Phillips. He says, apart from his ministry, in his office as priest, we may listen to God and we may bow to God. But we can never be accepted by God and draw near to his presence. Does that sound familiar? We could never draw near to his presence apart from the priestly work of Christ.
We spent the last four months talking about that. Listening and submission and obedience don't earn salvation. They don't earn our right to enter into the Lord's presence. Salvation and the ability to dwell in the presence of God is received by faith in the one who has earned salvation for us. As his name signifies in Matthew chapter one, his name would be Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. He succeeded the atoning work of the cross Canceled the debt of sin that was owed. It it appeased God's holy wrath and it won all the benefits of salvation for those who had put their faith and trust in Christ. His blood alone purifies. His blood alone justifies. He took on the sin that others had been imputed with. He took on the guilt of others that they had inherited He took on the sins that other people committed. And he reconciled them. Enemies back to the father. Through the sacrifice of himself. He didn't make salvation possible. He secured it. He redeemed his church. He cleansed his bride. He laid down his life for his sheep. He made full and final atonement for sin and no other sacrifice would be necessary. The sacrifice himself of himself was sufficient because as God, he was able to pay the eternal debt that was owed. And as man, he was able to stand as a substitute in our place. And the blood that he shed, the payment for sin, he as the great high priest took Behind the veil into the heavenly holy of holies that was not made by hands and presented it to the father securing our place. Securing our ability to dwell with him. And again, that debt being paid, fully paid, finally paid the atoning work and justifying worth succeeding and being accomplished. He did what no other priest could do. And sat down. It is finished. The pastor. Go back to the context. The pastor wrote this letter. To people that he loved. And cared for. That were in the midst. Of facing escalating persecution. People that were possibly huddled up in a home, wondering what was next, wondering if God cared for them, wondering if he understood the predicament they were in, and they were considering taking matters into their own hands to somehow deal with that persecution and to see themselves through it. And the the pastor doesn't give them a game plan of escape. He doesn't give them a five-step coping strategy. He doesn't give them 
or fill them with platitudes or empty promises or some kind of false hope. What does he do? He simply and matter-of-factly points them to Jesus. He points them to Christ. So let me do the same. Let me do the same for us. No matter what your circumstances might be. No matter what you are facing. No matter if you are finding yourself embracing or buying into those, those themes, for lack of a better word, that I mentioned as we began. Regarding spirituality, sovereignty, and justification. Let, consider, consider these three things. One, Jesus is not just or not only the final prophet. He is our final prophet. He's our final prophet. God has fully and finally revealed himself in Christ. And we have his written word through which that revelation is made known to us. Is here. The Bible is more than a book that contains God's word. It is the word of God. And all scripture, Old and New Testament, why, why we teach and preach the whole counsel of God is because both testaments are authoritative and complete and sufficient. And therefore, all we need, all we need to believe in, in regards to salvation and how we can glorify and enjoy the Lord forever, which is our chief end. And I, I know, I know it may seem more spiritual and exciting to have some sort of direct revelation outside of the word, like a vision or a dream or to hear an audible voice or to see a, a word or receive a word of knowledge. And I know it may may feel and seem more authoritative to say God told me or God gave me a word. And I know direct revelation is much easier and even, should I say, less boring than than deep study of God's word. And I know the church can be difficult because we are difficult people. But the reality is God's desire for us is to trust in. To trust in and rest in the ongoing work and ministry of Christ's spirit. Who illuminates his word. And enlightens our minds to the truth of his word and sanctifies us with it. May we not forsake his authoritative, complete and sufficient word word in an effort to be more spiritual. And may we maintain our conviction. Maintain our conviction of the simple means of grace ministry and the work of the Spirit within this corporate gathering, His body, His church, through word and sacrament. It is His word that He chooses to minister to His people.
Secondly, Christ is not only the ultimate king, he is our ultimate king. He's our ultimate king. And so, brothers and sisters, our hope is not in any political party or president to lead and deliver us. That's not where our hope should be. Christ is our only hope because he is ruling and reigning and he will bring about an end to redemptive history in the fullness of time. And until then, he's going to, as I prayed earlier for the Mitchells and the Brocks, he, Christ is going to continue to build his church in the midst of that. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. We, we, because he is our ultimate king, we need to stop bemoaning the church. Christ is active and involved. And we, we don't need to be dismayed about these The events of this past week, we don't need to be dismayed by elections of the past, present or future. Our heads don't need to hang low. God remains in sovereign control and we as as his people, we've been spiritually delivered out of darkness into marvelous light. And we will experience that one day physically. In the, in the words of, I, we're, we're soldiers and we're exiles. Right? Because we're citizens of heaven. This nation is not going to last. To borrow Daniel's words and Paul's interpretation, even this nation is going to be dashed on the rock who is Christ. Christ's kingdom. Is all that is going to last. It will not be moved. The Lord reigns now and forever. He's our sovereign king. And we owe him allegiance. Him alone. Allegiance. He who had the power to create all things. And has the power to sustain all things. That same. That same God. Has the power to recreate hearts. That he has the power to change minds. He has the power to replace hate with love and fear with assurance and hopelessness with confidence and joy. And all authority, again, I've already said this, but all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he alone is worthy to to be followed because he alone is worthy to lead. He is our ultimate king. And lastly, he is also... Our, not just the, but our perfect high priest. He's our perfect high priest. Our salvation is not in our hands. Our salvation is in the hands of Christ who made purification of sins and sat down having once for all made the sacrifice for sins. There's nothing we can do to justify ourselves or to make ourselves right before God or before anybody else. And any attempt on our behalf to even, we we can't earn or merit our salvation and we can't do enough to pay back God for what he has done for us. And anything that we might do in actuality puts us further in debt. It's a losing proposition to try to do this on our own. The debt he paid was eternal. We can't learn, we, we, we couldn't work hard enough or long enough. To pay him back. 
He didn't have to pay for his own sins, but he paid for ours. He completed that atoning work, that justifying work on the cross for us. Again, he entered into that Holy of Holies and secured our place in the presence of God. And he even now sits as he sits, his his atoning, justifying work being finished. He now sits as our high priest interceding on our behalf. We'll hear more of that as we go through Hebrews. And having been justified in his sight. We don't have to be right in the sight of others. We don't need their acceptance. We don't need their approval. We can humbly admit our faults. We can humbly repent of our sins with confidence, without fear of what others might think or if God has given up on us. Brothers and sisters, we need to look to Jesus. He's all we have. He is our final prophet, ultimate king, and perfect priest. He is better. There's no one like him. Let's pray.